Welcome to Akoban, the Warhorn, with Junius Ricardo Stanton. Welcome to Akoban, the Warhorn, with Junius Ricardo Stanton. Akoban is an indigra word and symbol of the Akan people who reside in Ghana, West Africa. The traditional villagers use it as a signal to call for alertness, preparation, assembly, and in extreme cases, mobilization. We sound the Bend to alert you to current events, present interesting personalities, and to provide a perspective you won't see or hear in the corporatist media or their digital platforms. Stay tuned. We'll be right back following this meditative moment and a message. Greetings to the Internet Radio family. This is Reverend Valentine speaking. You know, for nearly 30 years, I have had the distinct experience of being interviewed over every medium of communication available to the public. And except for the metaphysical underground, I can think of no other electronic venue that has been more progressive, more innovative, more insightful, more diligent, more diverse in its demographics, and more courageously supportive of the truth than this ever-growing phenomenon called Internet Radio. And this is precisely why I'm here to tell you that it is so vital that you give your wholehearted support to it. Tell a friend. In fact, tell two, three, and four of your friends. If you are a business owner, support Internet Radio by telling your customers and constituents all about it. Let them know that there is a legitimate and important substitute to all of the prefabricated, super-sensitive garbage polluting our public airways today. Don't allow the mass media to continue to treat you like a mindless consumer drone. Enhance your awareness. Indulge your critical thinking, your reasoning, and your analysis. Do as I do. Log on, listen in, and then let it be known all about your internet radio experience. Chimatep, beloved family, thank you for listening. Walk in light. This is a meditative, relaxing moment with Junius Ricardo Stanton encouraging you to relax, let your shoulders drop naturally, normally, breathe in through your nose, take a deep breath, let your abdomen expand, relax, hold it for a count of five, four, three, Two, one. Exhale, let your abdomen sink in. Relax, take a deep breath. Inhale, let your abdomen expand. Hold it. Five, four, three, two, one. Exhale. Softly relax, monitor your thoughts, don't resist, 
what you see, the images, relax, focus on your breathing, inhale deep, let your abdomen expand, hold it, five, four, three, two, one, exhale, relax, continue to monitor your breathing, focus only on your breathing, relax, let the tension flow outward from you, inhale, fully, fully expand your abdomen, fill your lungs with life-giving oxygen and air, hold it, five, four, three, two, one, exhale, relax, 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 perk up and be prepared to resume your day in an extremely relaxed state of mind, being, and health. Till next time, stay strong and stay healthy. Racist Professor Griff, we're listening to Junius. Ricardo Stanton, straight up, we're teaching you all those things you need to know from the neck up, alright? We're definitely doing a checkup from the neck up. This is Professor Griffin, from Public Enemy, the ex-minister. I'm out. Peace. And as we saw Black History 2022, mind you, Black History has just been all year. Does not just encompass the United States Black History World History. A call to awareness, a call to alertness, a call to action, and a call to war. Throughout the with Junius, we're going to share Stanton. a piece I published recently, Maroon Communities in Early America. We've been taught and brainwashed to believe kidnapped and enslaved Africans in the colonies and the U.S. lived in passive acceptance and acquiescence to the slavocracy without personal or collective resistance. Nothing was further from the truth. The scramble for new lands, natural resources, and wealth by Europeans led to centuries of piracy and war between the Spanish, English, French, Dutch, and Portuguese. To needle the British and recruit additional manpower for Florida, the Spanish king, Charles II, decreed enslaved people in the British colonies would be given refuge and safe haven in Florida if they converted to Catholicism and were willing to serve in the Spanish militia to defend the colony. His decree in 1693 opened the way for enslaved Africans to get to Florida, mostly from the British colonies of the Carolinas and Georgia. I recently highlighted Fort Mose, a settlement of free blacks who escaped and resided in Florida near St. Augustine. That strategically situated community was destroyed by the British, retaken by the blacks, and subsequently rebuilt. It lasted from 1738 to 1820. Even after the Spanish ceded Florida to the British, blacks continued to flee and create maroon communities, often forming settlements with the indigenous tribal groups in their area. These communities of Africans and Africans in America were called maroons. Quote, maroon refers to an African or an Afro-American person 
who freed themselves from enslavement in the Americas and lived in hidden towns outside of the plantations. Enslaved people used several forms of resistance to fight their imprisonment, everything from work slowdowns and tool damage to full-fledged revolt and flight. Some self-liberated people established permanent or semi-permanent towns for themselves in hidden places not far from the plantations, a process known as maroonage, sometimes spelled M-A-R-O-N-M-A-G-E or M-A-R-O-O-N-A-G-E. But maroonage flared up wherever people were enslaved and whenever the whites were too busy to be vigilant. In Cuba, villages made up of freedom seekers were known as palanques or mambises. And in Brazil, they were known as quilambo, magate, or mocambo. Long-term maroonage communities were established in Brazil, the Palmares, and Ambrosio, the Dominican Republic, Jose Lata, Florida, Pilaquicaja, and Fort Mose, Jamaica, Bannytown, Acapang, and Siemens Valleys, as well as Suriname, Kumaco. By the late 1500s, there were already maroon villages in Panama and Brazil, and Kumaco and Suriname were established as early as the 1680s. In the colonies that will become the United States, maroon communities were most abundant in South Carolina but they were also established in Virginia, North Carolina, and Alabama. The largest known maroon communities in what would become the U.S. was formed in the Great Dismal Swamp on the Savannah River on the border between Virginia and North Carolina. Unquote. Maroons and Maroonage, Escaping Enslavement, K. Chris Hurst, www.thoughtco. Dot com forward slash maroons and maroonage. Maroon communities had to be vigilant and resourceful. Being in the woods and swamps, the maroons could forage for seeds, game fish, eat snakes, and even grow their own food. Quote, most were short-lived. In fact, 70% of the largest quilambos in Brazil were destroyed within two years. However, Palmares lasted a century, and black Seminole towns, towns built by Maroons who were allied with the Seminoles in Florida lasted several decades. Some of the Jamaican and Suriname Maroon communities founded in the 18th century are still occupied by the, their descendants today. Most Maroon communities were formed in inaccessible or marginal areas, partly because these areas were unpopulated and partly because they were difficult to get to. The black Seminoles in Florida found refuge in central Florida swamps. The Saramanca Maroons of Suriname settled on riverbanks in deeply forested areas. In Brazil, Cuba, and Jamaica, people escaped into the mountains and made their homes in densely vegetated hills. Maroon towns nearly always had several security measures. Primarily, the towns were hidden away, accessible only after following obscure paths that required long treks across difficult terrain. In addition, some communities built defensive ditches and forts and maintained well-armed, highly drilled and disciplined troops and sentries. Unquote. That's from the same source. Often maroons subsisted off of raids on the European plantations or they traded with enslaved Africans or non-slave catcher whites who came within proximity to the maroon settlements. As more information becomes known through archaeology, it is important we familiarize ourselves with maroons, their traditions, and their resistance campaign. And it's important we understand this, not just in February, 
but all year round because it indicates and demonstrates resistance, resilience, and resourcefulness of our ancestors. And we need to rekindle that type of resistance, that type of resilience, that type of self-determination, and that type of focus to accomplish goals either on a personal or a collective level. And of course, that's the last thing the overlords, that's the last thing the ruling oligarchy want is people to be self-determining, people to have their own vision of their lives and to pursue the agency within themselves to manifest their goals, their dreams, and their ambitions away from the mind control and brainwashing that they have in store for us, the pigeonholing of us into their system, which is being reconfigured because of automation, artificial intelligence, and now even transhumanism. But we'll deal with that in future programs as we have in the past. But today we want to talk about and encourage you to find out more about resistance, more about resourcefulness, and more about the long-standing tradition of maroonage and seeking freedom because it is a subject that very few of us know anything about because we were not taught it and mainly because a lot of the maroon communities were secret. You had to be quote-unquote in the know to know that they existed and of course it was imperative that their location be kept secret from the slave catchers or from colonial administrators. It's up to us to support those doing the research to bring this critical information to light. Stay tuned. We'll talk about some other things, some other current events as we move forward. Don't go anywhere. While doing some research for that article, I came across another article entitled Maroon and Slave Communities in South Carolina before 1865 by Tim Lockley and David Doddington. And I didn't use any information or I didn't quote any information from it, but I would encourage you to go online because it is a very informative article. They talk about the prevalence of maroon communities. And I just wanted to share a couple of paragraphs and how prevalent it was. Now, I'm not saying that everybody and their mother escaped and participated in or formed a maroon community or that maroonage was in every cluster or every colony, but it was widespread. Last year, I did an article on the the Great Dismal Swamp, and so I'm going to share this from this article on maroonage in South Carolina. Quote, this article concentrates on South Carolina because evidence of maroon activity is more abundant in this state than any other. This is not to say that maroon communities were absent in other parts of the South. Maroons were active wherever and whenever slavery existed, especially in Virginia, North Carolina, and Alabama. Colonial slave populations were, of course, more African and less acculturated than their 19th century descendants. Even so, maroonage occurred from the oldest states along the Atlantic seaboard to the newest southwestern additions. As early as 1729, the governor of Virginia reported that a group of runaway slaves had settled, quote, in the fastness of the neighboring mountains, unquote, and he feared that they 
quote, would very soon be increased by the ascension of other runaways and proved dangerous neighbors to our frontier inhabitants, unquote. While the Appalachians were attractive to the 18th century due to sparse European settlement, they did not retain their allure after the American revolutions as widespread inland. In fact, the largest single maroon community in North America was almost certainly formed in the Great Dismal Swamp on the border between Virginia and North Carolina. One visitor to the area in 1784 was told, quote, runaway Negroes have resided in these places for 12, 20, or 30 years and upwards, subsisting themselves in the swamp upon corn, hogs, and fowls that they raise or some of the spots not permanently underwater, nor subject to be flooded, as 49 parts of 50 of it are. And on such spots, they have erected inhabitations and cleared small fields around them. Yet these have always been perfectly impenetrable to any of the inhabitants of the country around, even to those nearest to and best acquainted to the swamps, unquote. Consequently, runaways, quote, in these horrible swamps are perfectly safe with the greatest facility elude the most diligent of their pursuers, unquote. The attraction of the dismal swamp for maroons, namely its inaccessibility, also means that we have few accounts of the communities formed there, since literate whites rarely risk visiting its dense interior. Far better documented are the maroons of South Carolina, of all the colonies and the states that came later. On the mainland of North America, South Carolina, most closely replicated demography of Cuban islands like Jamaica, Barbados, and Hispaniola. By 1708, enslaved Africans formed a majority of South Carolina's population, the only mainland colony in which this happened, and in the coastal parishes dominated by rice plantations, up to 80% of the population was enslaved. The slave population of South Carolina also was more African and became creolized more slowly than the other significant concentration of slaves in colonial America in Virginia. Even in the 1780s, about a third of the 100,000 slaves living in South Carolina had been born in Africa. So you can see they, they do some thorough research. And like I said last year for Black History, I did an uh, article on the Dismal Swamp. And I did a series of articles to show how we have this misconception that the Underground Railroad ran from south to north. When in fact, you had these inhabitants, these maroonages, like the Dismal Swamp. But I also talked about how blacks fled to Mexico as well as Florida and even into the northern territories that were not part of the United States. Not many, but there were a significant number who fled and who did. And of course, that was going north toward the northwest. And of course, there were those who made the trek northward into the northern colonies or northern U.S. and also into what is now called Canada. And my point is that the urge and desire for freedom was paramount. Many people stayed not because they enjoyed enslavement and brutality and abuse and trauma, but because they didn't want to leave because they the, the trick was too hard for small children or toddlers. And they stayed with their family, their social unit. And a lot of people stayed because that was what they were most familiar with. But there were those who heeded the inner call to freedom. And we need to know more about them. And we also need to cultivate that calling within ourselves, particularly as 
the world moves into very dangerous territory. As we record this, we're seeing some military conflagration going on in, in Eastern Europe with Russia dealing with some of the breakaway provinces in Ukraine. So we want to touch on that for a few minutes and then, then we'll close out because the warmongering media here in the United States and even in the West and the UK and, and part of Western Europe has been anti-Russia for quite some time. And Vladimir Putin has been demonized. And of course, anytime they want to demonize them, they equate him or her to Hitler. And all Putin is doing is looking out for his country's best interests. And he's well aware that back in the the Reagan, the waning years of the Reagan administration and early years of the first Bush administration, the United States had made an oral agreement with uh, the Russian leader at the time, and his name escapes me, that they would not encroach any further into what used to be the Warsaw Pact nations, the old old Soviet bloc. But they reneged on their agreement, as they always do. Like the Native Americans said, white man speaks with a forked tongue. The concern for Putin, who has done a lot to rebuild Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, build it into a self-sustaining power, a power that has very little national debt. He built up the military and did it in a way that did not bankrupt his country. And he's making alliances that will assure that Russia will be a a key player in what he hopes to be a multipolar world order as opposed to an Anglo-American monopoly. That's the crux there. And what happened in 2014 under the Obama administration, the United States spent $5 billion to usher in a color revolution in Ukraine and replace the duly elected president with their hand-picked person. If you want to get some insight on it, just type in Victoria Nuland conversation or Victoria Nuland Ukraine and the audio of a of a um, conversation she had. And she was a, a key official in the Obama administration. Uh, she had a recorded and leaked conversation with one of the, the Americans in the State Department where they tell who they wanted to succeed the Ukrainian leader and she specifically says so and so is our guy and so that started it and because they put in an incompetent person that person allowed neo-Nazis who are self-identified as neo-Nazis to assume some control and some influence in in the culture and of course there's animosity and enmity against the Russians, even though many of the people in the Ukraine are ethnic Russians who speak Russians, who had ties with Russia because they were part and parcel of that landmass and that culture. And so you had the issue, particularly what happened with Crimea, because these neo-Nazis and these incompetents came in and they threatened the people and didn't want them to speak Russian, which was their native and their cultural and ethnic language. So they petitioned Russia to ask them if they could come back. And they they had a, a referendum 
They voted almost 90-some percent to, to come back and join Russia. So that's how the Crimea returned into the Russian fold. These people in, the, they call them the eastern provinces, Donbass, that area, had similar feelings, and they resisted the Ukrainian central government, and there were uh, hostilities, armed hostilities broke out, and they formed these quote-unquote breakaway provinces and that they've been struggling and there have been incursions back and forth a, a ceasefire was negotiated there have been breakages of the ceasefire ostensibly by both sides and Russia became concerned they they appealed to Russia for support and help and the Russians were helping them on a tactical basis but not engaging on a military basis or sending full-fledged troops things were getting bad the breakaways requested the same thing that uh, the Crimeans requested. And the Russian parliament, this is the thing that, that is not being put out there in the Western media. The Russian parliament passed legislation requesting Putin and their government to recognize them and be supportive of them. This was before Putin even did it last week. Now, you can say, well, this was orchestrated, this was choreographed, maybe so. So what? We're just reporting on the facts. And this is what has led us to this point. And, of course, the United States intelligence, they saw the Russians making moves. They saw the change. And a lot of times what the Russians did was in response to NATO drills all around the area, NATO drills in Poland, NATO drills in the Mediterranean, NATO drills all around that uh, the Russians viewed as provocative. And so they had the right to move their troops anywhere they saw fit, just like the United States does. And so the U.S. intelligence came up with the, okay, they're going to forcefully support these breakaway provinces. And he worked a, a situation with Belarus that they could send military personnel and equipment to Belarus for uh, any such military incursion and he recognized them and because the Ukrainians were still shelling them and again I said both sides had broken the, the ceasefire so this is what we're seeing we're seeing Russia's response and Russia understood and saw what U.S. and NATO did to Yugoslavians in uh, Kosovo, how they just bombed them relentlessly for months, every day. Hundreds and hundreds of sorties just bombing these civilian uh, areas, supposedly in the name of humanitarian assistance. And so what he has done, he's surgically taken out much of the Ukrainian infrastructure so they don't have the ability to wage war and we will see what happens there's going to be a lot of hand wringing there's going to be a, a lot of denunciations and all this kind of stuff it remains to be seen and we have to understand what i just explained to you that the united states created this crisis when they toppled the government and that information is in public domain i encourage my listeners to go in it and see it and then make up your own mind don't go for the okie doke. And with that, we'll close out. And as always, this is Junius Ricardo Stanton wishing each and every one of you love, peace, health, prosperity, wisdom, power, 
but most of all, courage. The courage to find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in your life so that you can evolve into all that the Creator intends for you to be and you can be a person of integrity and authentic to your truest and highest self and partner with the Creator to make a fabulous contribution to the collective. Till next time, stay safe, stay sane, and be well. Peace.